0: to the listeners uh, to the viewers to all of those who have tuned in um, inshallah you are keeping well inshallah you are keeping safe uh, inshallah those who are listening after are able to appreciate these discussions so thank you um, to all of you for your support inshallah assalamu alaikum guys who just joined inshallah you guys are keeping well Um, Welcome to the alaykum salaam wa rahmatullah Welcome to the monthly reflections podcast This is a live nightly Instagram live sessions that we do Every night of Shah Ramadan after UK time um, iftar Uh, So I hope all of you who are in the UK have had a nice iftar inshallah Those of you who are American or Canadian or elsewhere I'm sorry, out of of solidarity I'm not eating anything with you Alaykum salaam sister Alaykum salaam Sayyidina. And um, yeah, so it's a time to have a space after we've kind of chilled during the day in order to have a nice relaxed Islamic environment and discuss matters of Ilm but in a nice environment and today my dear brother Sayyid Muhammad Taqvi is going to join um, I think I might have to join, add him to the call and inshallah he will come Asalaamu Alaikum Aatah Zahraz Inshallah inshaallah and all of those of you who are joining uh, and especially those i have seen the same names for the last few years. and we've been getting so many nice comments and support from all of you about these podcasts and these discussions and Allah, we your service. You know, if any of you tuned in yesterday we had a nice little fun experience, and if you remember, we had someone drop out, someone come in, alaykumsalam, so that was good fun. Um, but we're glad to have you. Sayyidina, as-salamu alaykum.
1: assalam,
0: wa rahmatullah. Habibi, how are you? Alhamdulillah, <clears throat> how are you? I'm keeping, I was just introducing, I didn't even get to do you yet. I was going to give you a big uh, a big introduction, but khair. You...
1: I will sit back and watch your introduction, bismillah.
0: No but now I'm shy, now I'm shy You
1: know. <laughs> Pretend, I'm Pretend I'm not here, you you introduce me, Bismillah
0: The guest that we have today is Sayyid Muhammad Taqvi, Who is joining from, is it called Purified Books? Is that the name of the um, of the project you're working on at the moment? And uh, maybe Ali can speak about that in a second Say Muhammad Taqvi is a good friend of mine, Alhamdulillah um, He's up north, are you in Manchester right now or are you? Are you in Manchester? Yeah, I'm
1: originally from Wales but yeah, I live in Manchester now
0: His respected father as well is... Um, an alim who has contributed so much in the uk uh in in providing access to ulama and different communities so we're grateful to have taqfi the reason why i really love say takvi and i'll say it now while he's here is because of the brotherhood which he promotes with the brothers around him he is a very enjoyable crowd to be around and he spreads the love of ahl al-bayt in a way that all of us can just join in and it's more of a journey we go on together and i feel the love from the brother and i've seen those around him feel the love from him and I'm here to give you the same love from us, inshallah. So, Sayyidina, As Alaikum Warahmatullahi Alaikum Salaamu Thank you for accepting to come on the Monthly Reflections podcast. So happy to have you here and um, to go into the live with you. How are you? How's your family? How is work? How's everything, bro?
1: I said thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to come on. Alhamdulillah, I'm good. Uh, Ramadan is going quite good. Um, a little bit of a headache today I had throughout the day, maybe I didn't drink enough water at Sahood or something but uh, it was a bit of a difficult one today, uh, mm. the last couple of hours I've just been laying down holding my head <laughs> and knocking back some paracetamols just to make sure oh. that I'm ready for this podcast. Oh bro, not, now we feel bad. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no problem at all, any opportunity, I, uh, you know. Uh, khidmat is here for us, you know, that's what we do as lecturers and speakers, as you know yourself, mm-hmm. whenever we get given an opportunity to speak, whenever we get given an opportunity to spread the, the message of the Ahlul Bayt, you know, we're more than happy to serve irrelevant of, uh of how we feel, of, uh, you know, in terms of illness, sickness, that doesn't really matter.
0: You know, when I started lecturing, I used to, like, there's a lot of perceptions about doing Tabriq and what it's like and going to communities and speaking and minbar and all that stuff. Man, you know the tiredness and fatigue that comes with it? No one ever told me about this. Um, What they also never told me was you get strength from other places when you're serving Ahlul Bayt. You get it from random different places, you know, Um, three-hour journeys and whatever. But you know what? When you get there, from somewhere you have energy to serve Ahlul Bayt. I don't know if you've seen this around you for others and yourself as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, especially when it comes to Muharram, Mm. which is uh, at the moment what's happening in the UK is there's a shortage of English lecturers. And one thing that I've seen growing in the last five or six years is that a lot of centers are starting to hold English lectures, even if it's before the Urdu, as in, you know, some, some centers may not have English as their main. Uh, lecture throughout the nights of Muharram but they've started to introduce English lectures but because there's a shortage of English speakers especially in the UK compared to the demand that there is for the centres uh, we've a lot of us have started to read in multiple places and <laughs> believe me that can really catch up to you especially when you get to around fifth sixth seventh Muharram, and you've been reading in two to three different centers every night and going to work as well because obviously for the past two, four years i've been reading local to manchester so i've been going to work in the mornings Then, as soon as i finish work i've got my abba my kaba and everything in my bag yeah like some you know otherwise i wouldn't make it so you know for example i'd go to blackburn then i'd go to rochdale then i'd go to oldham and I'd come to Manchester and wow. doing for ten consecutive nights, it has its toll, but then again, like you just mentioned, you know, you get the strength from the Ahlul Bayt Bahamdullah gives mm. you the strength if you are serving him. There's no doubt about that. He is with you every step of the way.
0: MashaAllah, that's beautiful. And it's so true. It's so true. Something I've noticed, and because you mentioned English language, I'll expand on this. In all this explosion of English poetry, English speaking ulama uh, a lot of books translated and sold in English So much more than before um, English speaking houses and podcasts And all of that stuff You know why I like this so much? You know, we have the language of Ahl al-Bayt And their dhikr and their fada'il Which we have kept in certain languages for a long time And maybe I've grown up, you've grown up Hearing from the member the fada'il of Ali alayhisselam In Urdu or someone else in Arabic or Farsi But when you say yeah. in English Have you noticed that this is actually the first time In a lot of places that some people are actually hearing the merits of Ahl al-Bayt in English They never heard it before And never. the value of this is They're now not these inaccessible figures In my parents' generation Ahl al-Bayt are for you They are for you And their words belong to your life And their meaning is as directly applicable to your challenges And I think in English language The work that we're doing at the moment Which is so important by the way Is allowing people to have a new relationship to Ahl al-Bayt Which they might not have had before I know yeah. that I've heard this in your lecture Do you get what I'm trying to say? Like, people have a special connection now to the Imams Because they hear it in English basically
1: they understand it, that's the main thing, like I've got two boys myself, you know, aged five and seven, yeah, we're trying to teach them Urdu and we're trying to teach them Punjabi and trying to make sure that they're in touch with their Asian culture, but then again, you know, English is their main language, you know, and uh, if if we jump another another generation down the line, you know, one of us in my, my grandchildren, so to speak, that's it, you know, they they could not sit in an Urdu Majlis and understand a single word. They're literally gonna be sitting there like as if we were to sit in an Arabic majlis. And I remember back in Wales, it was very difficult to get English into the masjid. Um now that could be due to several reasons, but one of the main reasons was the elders didn't want it. Right? <laughs> and I believe English lectures in Wales especially caught on really late. And I was there for 25 years, but I really got a chance to lecture. And then wow. after I moved out of Wales and I moved to Manchester, all of a sudden Wales has been holding English ashras. And I'm like, yeah, I've been there for 25 years and I did not get a chance to speak. <laughs> one thing that one of the uncles said was, he said, you know, no, no, this is wrong. You know, we should stick to Urdu. It's our culture, it's our language, et cetera. Which, which fair enough, you know, I understand where they were coming from. But one comment he made, which really made me, Not like, was he said that when the Majlis is going on, all the youth is standing outside. And then as soon as the Messiah finishes, they all come inside, which is wrong. And my reply to him, with the utmost respect, obviously we respect our elders, irrelevant of of the situation. So with the utmost respect, I said to him, I said, Uncle, tell me one thing. If we were to switch the Urdu lectures to Arabic, for example, because at the end of the day, Rasulullah didn't speak Urdu, right? Imam Ali didn't speak Urdu, right? So originally lectures in majalis were formed in the language of Arabic, right? We couldn't understand Arabic or our forefathers couldn't understand Arabic. Therefore, they translated the lectures into Urdu so that we could understand. Now we've come to a generation where English has become our main language and our children don't understand Urdu and Punjabi. Therefore, what's the harm in changing it again? I mean... The Ahlul Bayt not restricted to a certain language, are they? They're, you know, the Ahlul Bayt are accessible for everybody. I said, Uncle, tell me one thing. If we were to switch to Arabic lectures today, how many of you elders would be standing outside waiting and coming in when the Messiah finished and then he, he couldn't say anything back? He was just like, no, you're right, you're right.
0: <laughs> i got to say, by the way, um, uh, that's definitely true. Manchester is my favorite place to recite every, anywhere I go. And uh, mm. you know this, the, the community in Manchester, the boys in Manchester, the youth in Manchester, the environment is so positive. And I wonder why, I wonder if other places are a little behind in that environment that maybe you guys have already reached. And because so many of you are there, I don't know what you've done there to make it such a special place for the brothers.
1: Well, I used to live in Wales and I used to drive all the way to Manchester to deliver lectures. Worth it. <coughs> so worth it. In places like Bolton, in Oldham, in Blackburn, but at that time, obviously... I didn't have a place to stay here. Yes, the brothers offered me a place to stay, but due to work, et cetera, I couldn't stay. So I'd had to drive from Wales for 250 miles all the way to Manchester. I'd deliver a, a speech at one of the centers and then I'd drive back. And then I thought to myself, you know, when I, when we were intentionally thinking about moving here, but Alhamdulillah, since I've moved here, you know, it's been absolutely amazing. The 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 the, the communities have really taken advantage of me being here, and I've taken advantage of being here, and I've been able to speak in Greater Manchester so much since I moved here, you know. Um, and it's a lot easier now; it's just five ten minute drive, you know, as opposed to three hours. Yeah. But yeah, no, Manchester community is something else. The brothers, the brothers have formed an amazing, uh, amazing. Place. Yeah, we've got to bring you
0: down to South London as well, by the way, inshallah. Um, I feel like we here in, I'm in one of the centres I'm in the Islamic Centre Now we, we have a programme I feel like we are maybe One generation behind you In the brotherhood of the, of the boys So we're working uh, yeah. hard now to do it But you guys have got it now Definitely
1: When we were deciding on where to move And me and my family were having a discussion Initially we thought London That was our initial thought uh, Just so expensive <laughs> and, yeah. and obviously to move And get set up in london on six members or five members of a family with only one person working it, it wouldn't have been financially yeah. possible and we looked at a part, we looked at you know uh, houses etc and it was like 1500 to 1800 for a two bed it's like yeah then we thought manchester and again you know the manchester brothers have shown me so much love ever since i used to come from back in the days in wales they used to pick me at the train station take me to their home show me the hospitality take me out to places to eat socialize to majales, and then drop me back as well and the brotherhood was just so amazing so i just thought to myself look if you want the hustle bustle and the business of london but in a much more financially suitable area than I just moved to Manchester And we made the move, uh, I believe, six years ago now I've been here six years Wow I feel like they're, they're grooming me in the same
0: way but, And then one day they're trying <clears> to <throat> make me move there too <laughs> But <laughs> Alhamdulillah, you're there
1: So there's no need for people like me to come No, to, uh, no, Bismillah before uh, more to, the, the merrier <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like this thing And I want to talk about this thing of brotherhood you mentioned It's very important um, We often use the word walaya to describe brotherhood um, as a, as a separate link to wilaya. Now wilaya is of course the authority of Ahlul Bayt, but you find that those people who love Ahlul Bayt, because we all share that same object of adoration, Ali ibn Abi Talib we have the same grief for alayhi salam, It means that we among ourselves build a special link. So this is known as the you know the horizontal wilaya, whereas the vertical wilaya is with Imam Ali alayhi salam. I wanted to ask you, you know what? What is this thing? I mean, we love each other for the sake of Ahlul Bayt, I get that. We love each other for Imam Ali, I get that. But somehow, how I treat you reflects on how much I'm following Imam Ali. I need to kind of make sense of this a little bit. How how much can you help us in, in that issue?
1: Yeah, no, you're, <clears throat> you're definitely right. Then this is obviously one of the topics that we're going to be discussing tonight, you know, brotherhood, Wilaya And also I'd like to touch a little bit upon the biography of Amir al-Mu'min to mention a few key factors in his life that we can That's reflect true. on at the end of the, uh, the day. This month, is his month as well, because, you know, his Shahada is coming up, you know, in a few weeks time at the end of the holy month of Ramadan. But you're right. It's, it's, it's like, you know, they say you love your Muslim brothers for the sake of Allah. Right? You forgive them for the sake of Allah. You know, you create bonds of brotherhood and friendships for the sake of Allah. But especially when it comes to us and our brotherhood, especially with the followers of Ali ibn Abi Talib, you'll find <clears throat> that just because that person loves Amir al-Mu'mineen, you automatically fall in love with that person. You don't know him. Right? You've never met him, for example. Like, like you, you, you should, you'll you know this. You're a lecturer yourself, right? We go to places where we've never lectured before, Right we'll go to a mosque where we've never met anybody before we only have one source of contact and that's the person that's called you for the lecture but then after the lecture all the brothers come up to you and before you know it you're creating like you know friendships and brotherhood people you've never met and you don't know who they are you don't know what their attributes are you don't know what traits they have you don't know what they're like as a person at all you never met them before this is your first time but automatically because you know they are followers of Amir al-Mu'mineen because you know they believe in the wilaya of Amir al-Mu'mineen. You automatically have a soft spot for them. You know, you automatically fall in love with them. You create this bond that lasts. With me, there's places that I've lectured, you know, all over the UK, for example. I'm still in touch with some of the brothers, you know, yeah. who... Five, six, seven years ago, I've lectured in places like Nottingham, for example, in places like Peterborough, for example. And up till today, I'm still in touch with those brothers. You know, we're, we're still talking on a, on a daily basis, whether it's Facebook, whether it's WhatsApp, whether it's Instagram, Snapchat, that bond, that love is there. But like you said, the source of that love and brotherhood is the wilayah of Amir al You love that person because they love Ali. That's mm. the, the main reason.
0: Why, I often see from Ali Alayhi encourages his own followers to share in that among each other. You know, you find that the likes of Abu Dhar and Miqdad and Salman and Mitham mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, all of these companions, they were friends with each other. They had a lot of adoration for each other. I used to read, I remember that. Malik al-Ashtar and Abu Ayyub Ansari would go and trade together, they'd walk together, they'd, they'd spend time together. Abu Dhar and Salman, friends as well, like, you know, obviously some things they were not friends, as in <laughs> the difference of opinion in some things, but genuine brothers, the way brothers are. And mm. I want, I've i always wondered, like, in the time right now for him to the Imam, السلام, we need to have the same kind of brotherhood now, where it's like, I am to my brother like Abu Dhar was to Salman, or because we have the same Imam who we're following and i think that the place we get that from is the imam themselves the imam is the one who gives us all of everything that we need to build these bonds with each other more than your work than your family your friends the love of being a shia ali ibn abdullah islam is way stronger so i wonder in the life of ali al islam in the way that he is and the way that he acted in the way that he the way that he decided to spend the time that he spent what do we have from Imam Ali alayhi salam, which helps us in knowing each other better and being better friends. You know, what is so special about his life that survives until now?
1: Well, look look, look, look at the examples that we have from the life of Amir al-Mu'mineen. Not just Muslims, right? Look at the way he treated humanity. Right? For example, there's a very famous narration where Amir al-Mu'mineen is one day walking with one of his companions past a church. right? And his companion turns towards Amir al-Mu'mineen and he says, I wonder how much shirk is happening in that building right now. Now, Amir al-Mu'mineen could have easily have replied back by saying, yeah, that is shirk, you know, <laughs> or anything along those lines. He replied back, he said, no, forget that. I wonder how much Allah is being worshipped in that house. Even, for example, there's a very famous story with Amir al-Mu'mineen when he was traveling with uh, a Jewish uh, companion and they reached the point where their journey had differed. So, for example, Amir al-Mu'mineen was, let's just say, for example, going to Kufa and the Jewish person was going to Yemen, for example. They came to a point in their journey where there was a split where Amir al-Mu'mineen needed to go right and the Jewish person needed to go left. What did Amir al-Mu'mineen do? He followed him mm. all the way until that person actually stopped and said, hold on, if I'm not mistaken, you told me you were going to Kufa. yes, I am. He said, but you've come so far out. And Amir al said, in my religion, in Islam, it teaches us that when you start a journey with somebody, you must accompany them to that journey's end. So therefore, I followed you all this way, away from my own destination, just so that I could keep you company. So this was Amir al-Mu'mineen's ikhlaq, this was Amir al-Mu'mineen's wow. way of treating non-Muslims. Like Muslims aside, I mean, Muslims, we can give many examples of how we treated, you know, Muslims, for example, a beggar would come up to Amir al-Mu'mineen and ask him for, for, for some charity, for example. And there's a very famous narration that I've read myself where Amir al-Mu'mineen would say to Salman, pick up that rock and pick up a stone of the earth. Amir al-Mu'mineen would place it in his hands and close his hands. He would then open his hand and that stone would become gold. Wow. He would then, that person, take as much as you need. So treating Muslims, obviously, it makes sense. You're a Muslim leader, you've got Muslims, that's fine. But look at the way he treated non-Muslims as well. Mm -hmm. Look at the way he treated the Jews and the Christians, even in the battles, for example, if you look at the Battle of right? when we speak about the Battle of Khaybar, we always jump straight to the lifting of the door, the cutting of marhab, you know, all these... The Narahedri
0: moment, basically,
1: you know. Yeah, no, 100%, (laughs) they're all true moments. There's no doubt about that. Yes, Amir al lifted a gate that it took 40 men to lower on his own. No doubt. Yes, Amir al split Marhab in half. Yes. But one thing a lot of people might not notice or might not really pay much attention to, which I always bring up whenever I mention Khaybar, is just before the battle took place between Amir al and Marhab, mm. right? Just before they fought, Amir al said to him, you follow Nabi Musa. We follow Nabi Musa. Wow. You follow Nabi Harun." We follow Nabi Harun. You follow the Torah. We respect the Torah. You are people of the book. We follow the same religion. Your Musa is our Musa. Your Harun is our Harun. And in fact, your Nabi Musa salam prophesied that a man will come in Arabia who will continue my message. That is that man standing behind me. So a lot of people don't realize even before his battles took place, he'd always still try to create a bond of unity and brotherhood, even with his enemies. Fighting would be the last resort. And we know Amir al-Mu'mineen was so brave, he would never lose a fight, right? So you know that you're definitely going to win. You want to haste towards the battle, don't you? Because you know you're going to win. But no, he would wait. He would always try to reconcile with his enemies and even with his conversations with Marhab. While they're fighting, Amir al-Mu'mineen is saying, stop, you are a follower of the book. We are a Mm -hmm. follower of you know, So just his relationship with the Jews, with the Christians, with the non-Muslims was yeah. enough to show you the character of this great man. Um, and then again, obviously, the way he treated the Muslims was just, was just something else. I mean, imagine you being the governor of Kufa, right? A governor of the Islamic State. And in the middle of the night, cover your face, get a rucksack filled with food. And you walk the streets of Kufa and you give food to the orphans and you don't reveal it's you. You know, you don't reveal that you don't show off that no. I am the man giving you the food. He would they would ask him, the children of Kufa, the Yatim would ask him, the orphans would say, Who are you? And he would just say, Anna abul yatam That's it. I am the father of you. that's all you need to know. And the only way they found out that our father was Amir al-Mu'mineen was after he got struck on the 19th of Ramadan for the next two days, their father didn't come with food. So when they had realized that Amir al-Mu'mineen has died, that's when the the children thought, oh my God, the person that used to come in the middle of the night and comfort us and give us food and give us shelter and give us money and give us clothes and give us stories and hug us and kiss us was the actual king. Can you imagine a king just... Like i like to bring this point up a lot just imagine how lavishly kings live hmm. right and especially during that time like you you've got the likes of muawiyah for example who would eat 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 so much right that he would lay down and eat right <laughs> <laughs> to, which, to which the prophet would say may your stomach never be full right, right. so you got people and kings living so lavishly and so comfortably Right? Yet, Amir al-Mu'mineen, you, you look at his, his final uh, sahur, uh, mm-hmm. or his, his final uh, sehri at his daughter Zainab or Om house and what would she do? She would place in front of him bread, milk and salt. Right? That's it. And Amir al-Mu'mineen would look at his daughter and he would say, this is too much. Mm-hmm. Take one thing away.
0: He says, I've never seen a daughter do something as harsh to a father as this moment.
1: Yeah. Offering me three foods when I, would, I need, only need one or two. Imagine. I mean, at the end of it, the milk, bread, and salt, that's not lavish. Yeah. But he would still say to, to his daughter, he would say, no, this is too much. Take one thing away. Yeah. Also, she would either take away the milk or she'd take away the salt, and then he would take the bread, dip it in the milk, or soften it and eat it. So this yeah. was... This- this was his life, you know. This was the way he lived. He lived so in such a way that even the poorest of the poor could relate to him. Mm-hmm. I believe the reason he lived that way was because that way, look, how how often can you say that a poor person can relate to a king? Never mm. right? never can you say that a poor person can say, I know what he's going through, or I can relate to the king. Never, right? But Every poor person in Kufa could easily say we can relate to Amir al-Momini because he lived like us. That's beautiful. He didn't need to live like us. For a man turning stone into gold. I mean, do you really think he needed to physically work in in the farms and the agriculture and digging wells in the in the scorching heat, making money to come home to feed his family? And then there was times where he didn't even have enough money to feed his own family. Yeah. You know, there was times where say, the Fatima would say to Amir al-Mu'mineen, I've never asked you for anything, right? In her lifetime, she would say, I've never asked you for anything, right? And Amir al-Mu'mineen says, I've been waiting for the day that you yearn for something, Fatima, so I could give it to you. She would say, today I feel like eating a pomegranate. So Amirul al-Mu'mineen would say, no problem. This is your first request to me, I will get you a pomegranate. So Mir al-Mu'mineen leaves, he goes to the marketplace, he's only got enough money for one pomegranate, he buys the pomegranate for his wife, he's coming home and on his way home, there was a beggar, the beggar turns to Mir al-Mu'mineen and says, I'm very, very hungry, is it possible that you could give me some food? So Mir al-Mu'mineen breaks the pomegranate in half, he gives half to the poor person sitting on the street, comes home and gives half to his wife. So say the Fatima, obviously not in, in, in any, you know, shocked way, but she would ask like, the one time I've asked you for something, right? When you bring me half a pomegranate, I mean, would reply back and say, "What do you want me to do?" I was walking back from the marketplace. There was a beggar. The beggar asked me for some. You know, I cannot deny that. Right? So even things like this, you know, he would. He would and and look at Sayyidah Fatima. I mean, one one great example of giving to the poor that we can take from is the wedding dress, tour, mm-hmm. right? is a story that obviously i always say in my lectures which obviously every time i say it i always see people laughing but men we don't understand the importance of a wedding dress right for us it's just clothes right at unless, the end of the- unless
0: the man has to pay for it then he cares a whole lot about it
1: well of course if the man but in most cultures the men do pay for the women's wedding dress right right but at the end of the day irrelevant of the cost we're not really worried what material it is you know yeah. we're not worried what color it is we're not worried how many mirrors and how many diamonds and how many designs and you know what i mean whether it's a Junaid jamshed you know we we don't really go into all that right yeah give us a suit we're happy give us a shirwani we're happy right but women obviously for them it's a big deal i'm not saying it's a bad thing at all Don't, don't get me wrong right it's their special day they can wear you know whatever they want on that day so, a wedding dress for a woman is a big, big deal, right? And say the Fatima, her whole life only had one dress, right? So, her father felt, Look, my daughter's getting married, let me buy her a new dress. So, Rasulullah would buy a brand new dress for his daughter. Just before her wedding, he would come and he would present her with this brand new wedding dress. And he would say to his daughter, Oh, Fatima, this is for you to wear tomorrow or today, as in on your wedding day she would thank her father for the gift she would take the dress it's weird how <clears throat> this is a podcast so we can obviously put our own views and stuff in, right but it's yeah. weird how the beggars always knew what time it's a good <laughs> Coming home with the pomegranate, the beggar knew, you right. Fatima to Zahra, as-salamu blessed with well, the beggar. I never thought about this before. Every student knows, knows
0: exactly what to ask. <laughs>
1: I'll, take it one, I'll take it one step further. The story in the Quran when Imam Hassan and Hussein alayhi got ill, yeah. right, and the Ahlul Bayt made a vow to fast for three days, and every single day at the time of Fatoor, as they were about to eat... <laughs> the beggars come out the door. It's kind of weird how these stories work okay, out. The, cheek- the
0: cheekiest beggar that I know is the one who while Imam Ali Islam is fighting. While he's fighting says, I heard that you, you never say no to a beggar. Yeah. He's like, well, yeah. And if not, Give me your shield then. Now Or give me you your sword. Now, here's the sword. Here's the way the is funny. He knows Muhammad Ali, Alayhi <laughs> he knows he wants to know, so he knows he'd say yes, so this guy's come with a plan, like he, he's at home, he's putting on his sandals, he's getting his clothes, going to like, he goes, yeah, guess what, I'm going to ask somebody for his sword, no one's done it before, the wife's like, you're mad, what are you on about, no, no, watch it, yeah. I'm going to get his sword off him, he goes, he plans, he's got his whole day ready, and the answer he gets destroys him, he's like, hey, I've got your sword now, you said, you said yes to me, i got your sword, I can kill you, what are you going to do now? And he replies beautifully, Allah has appointed for me a time of my death. Now, until that point, until it comes, no sword can strike me. And when it comes, no one can save me. And the man kneels down, puts the sword on the ground, and follows the amount of fights behind him in battle. Now, <laughs> this is the story of both. The audacity of those who ask, but the beauty of the one who gives.
1: Yeah, no, of course. And <clears throat> obviously, just to finish on the wedding dress, and then yeah. I've got a comment about what you just said there. But uh, the wedding dress story, obviously, for those that don't know, just to refresh our memories, is that the moment uh, the Holy Lady of Light got gifted a brand new wedding dress. Now, imagine this is the first time you've been gifted a dress. You've been wearing the same dress your entire life, right? Yeah. Nine years of your life. And then all of a sudden, your father gives you a brand new dress. You are looking at this dress like, oh my God, I've got a brand new dress. It's my wedding day. It means
0: Please tell us what happens when Sayyidah Zahra is trying to get her dress. What happens next? We need to
1: know, bro. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, 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 no. I'll, ca- I'll carry on from, uh, from where I left off. So, please do. the father gives her a brand new dress. And as we were saying, you know, especially for a woman, a wedding dress is a big deal and it means a lot. So, she, yeah. she got given this brand new dress. She's really excited to wear this dress on her wedding day. Then all of a sudden, a beggar comes and knocks on the door. It's a lady who says that I don't have any clothes and is it possible that you could give me some clothes, right? Yeah. So Seyda Fatima then gifts her a brand new wedding dress to the poor lady and gets dressed in her normal clothes For her wedding. When Rasulullah comes to collect his daughter to take her to the wedding ceremony, he sees that she's wearing the same dress that she was wearing before, and she's not wearing the brand new dress that the Prophet had gifted her. So evidently the Prophet asks, Oh my beloved daughter, where is the dress that I gave you? So she replies yeah. back and says, oh father, as soon as you had gifted me that dress, a few moments later, somebody knocked on the door and they asked if it was possible for me to give them some clothes because they didn't have any. And you know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, he loves those that give out of that which they love. Mm. I love that wedding dress, but I love Allah more. He's so to wow. so, attain Allah's pleasure, I gave my wedding dress away, Right. Now, one thing yeah. that we have to notice, especially when it comes to charity, Sayyid, is we don't give brand new things away, do we? Mm, we always I give away you. clothes or shoes or items that we no longer need. They're ripped. They no longer fit. It's too big for you. It's too small for you. don't like the color. Exactly, exactly <laughs> right? You'll notice that you know, a lot of people, You know, when they've got brand new trainers, they'll give the old ones away to charity. If they've got some new clothes, yeah, right. Or give the old clothes away to charity. But what Sayyidah Fatima was showing us was she could have easily have given away her old dress. Mm -hmm. Right? And kept her brand new dress. But she gave her brand new dress to charity and kept her old dress. And her response to her father was Allah loves those that give charity out of that which they love. I love the wedding dress. Therefore I gave it. So coming back obviously onto topic. So we were mentioning Amir al-Mu'mineen and we were mentioning, you know, how he treated non-Muslims and how he treated Muslims as well and the bonds of brotherhood. And you mentioned a very beautiful story where you mentioned Amir al-Mu'mineen in the battlefield where somebody would ask him for his sword and Amir al-Mu'mineen would give his sword away. And then he would say that Allah has decided that, you know, there is a time for me and nobody can put for that time. Just off that, it sparked uh, you know, something in my mind where I remember that there's a very famous incident between Misam mm-hmm. and Mukhtar al fakhfi right? right? Where both of these were present standing in front of Ubaydullah ibn Ziyad, right? And Ubaydullah ibn Ziyad said to Misam, Is there a possibility that you will ever stop? proclaiming and mentioning and praising Amir al-Mu'mineen, right? Now Masam mm-hmm. and Mukhtar were friends. Right. What's the response, right? This, this story always gets me, right? I've been told I'm good at storytelling because I've built up a lot of tension. <laughs> Right? But these two were friends, right? <clears throat> so when yeah. ubaydullah ibn ziyad says to Misam, is there any way that you will stop proclaiming the praise of Amir al-Mu'mineen? Is there? And Misam replies back by saying, yes, there is one thing that if you do it, I will stop. So Ubaidullah says, what's that? He says, kill Mukhtar, and I'll stop saying Ali. So Mukhtar <laughs> turns towards his, his friend, Misam, he says, What are you doing? <laughs> I thought you were my friend. <coughs> what do you mean, kill me? <clears throat> and then you'll stop proclaiming the praise of Amir al And then mm-hmm. Nisa gives the most beautiful reply. He says, Muqtad, do you not remember that Amir al Mu'mineen said, Ubaydullah ibn Ziyad will die by your. Soul. So, how is it possible that Ubaydullah is able to kill you when Amir al has said, yeah. You will be the one to kill him? <laughs> so in essence, what is there's nothing that you can do to make me stop praising Amir al-Mu'mineen But we have so much certainty in the words of our Mawla So yeah. much certainty in his statement That the heavens and the earth can move from their place But the words of Amir al-Mu'mineen will always be true To the extent 100%. that Amirul al would say to Misam Misam, this is the tree that you will be hung by And what does he do? Instead of cutting that tree down, he goes and waters the tree Wow and sits next to the tree and says, this is the tree where I will die. Right? Yeah. So, you know, and obviously, when, when mentioning charity and giving away, obviously, we have to mention the story of the ring, we have to mention the wilayat of Amir al-Mu'mineen. So just a little, a little backstory before we, we delve because whenever I, I like to mention historical uh, incidences, I don't like to just jump straight into it. I like to give a bit of a background because there's there's always a purpose why everything happened. There's always a reason why everything happened, right? So the story of the ring, you'll notice that a lot of people start off straight away by going in the Mawaliya and they dial straight into the verse, right? But what I like to do is I like to go a little bit back and understand why was this verse revealed. Right. right. So it has yeah. to be a purpose. Okay? Now the purpose was that two Jewish individuals came to the Prophet. Now, this hadith has been narrated by Abadar al-Khari, one of the great companions of Arif al-Mu'mineen. Abadar narrates that two Jewish individuals had come to the Prophet and they presented a question. They said, they said to the Prophet that Hutsa alayhi salam in his lifetime elected Harun alayhi salam as his successor in his lifetime. Right. So who do you elect as your successor during your lifetime? This was the story behind this verse. This was the, the, the back story, so to speak, behind the verse instead of just jumping straight into the verse. So the story begins with two Jewish individuals approaching Rasulullah and saying that Nabi Musa had elected Nabi Harun as his successor during his lifetime. So who do you elect as your successor during your lifetime? Mm-hmm. Now, Padan narrates that we all know that the Quran says, نيوها, Right? That the messenger mm-hmm. of Allah does not proclaim anything out of his own desire, It is nothing but revelation, right? So, just because of that verse, the Prophet didn't just reply, he waited. As he waited, Jibreel came down with a verse. That's when Jibreel said, Ya Rasulullah, إِنَّمَا وَلِيَّكُمُ wa وَرَسُولَهُ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا الَّذِينَ وَيُعْطُونَ الزَّكَاةَ وَهُمْ رَاكِعُونَ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is your wali. <clears throat> the message... Whilst in the state of Raku are the third category to walayat. Right? Right, right? Now, when this verse was revealed, it didn't make any sense. Okay? So to the Prophet... Of course it made sense. Of course, but to the yeah. two Jewish individuals they were like What do you mean? They established prayers, they pay the poor Jew and they bow down. Right? It didn't make sense. And then at that moment <clears throat> a beggar was leaving the mosque as the prophet, the two Jewish individuals and Abad al Ghafari were entering the mosque. They then said to that beggar, What are you doing here? Right. So the beggar said, I came to this mosque to ask for some charity. So Rasulullah said, Did you receive any charity? He said, Yes, an individual gave me charity. So the Prophet said, What did he give you? He said, Ya Rasulullah, the man gave me his ring. What was he doing when he gave you the ring? So the beggar said, He was establishing prayers. The Prophet said, In what state was he when he mm. gave you this ring? The beggar said he was in the state of Ruhu when he gave me the ring. To which the prophet turned towards <clears throat> the Jewish individuals and he said, You're asking. Successor during his lifetime. Who do I elect as my successor during my lifetime? Oh, beggar, tell me who was this person that. In the but whilst being a believer who was he so the beggar said it was that man over there Ali ibn Abi Talib alayhi <laughs> the prophet then turned towards the two Jewish individuals and he said you are asking me who's my successor during my lifetime that man right there fits the category of this verse therefore he is the one who is my successor during my lifetime that is the way I present the story of Wilaya." <laughs> As opposed to just jumping straight into the verse, there's a backstory, yeah. right? There's, there's, you know, there's a hadith from the Prophet, a very famous one to which he says to Amir al are you not satisfied? So Amir al says, with what? He says, Musa. Wow. You are to me as Harun was to Musa, la ba'di, except that there will be no Prophet after me, ya Ali. You are to me Harun was to Musa. So that... Correlation of of, of of Nabi Musa and Nabi Harun reflects upon the Prophet and upon Amirul mumineen and something that maybe some of our viewers may not have, so maybe they have come across is <clears throat> the similarities between Nabi Harun and Amirul mumineen are great, right? We're all very familiar with an incident that when the Prophet first built the Mosque of uh, Medina Nabwa, all the companions' doors used to open into the mosque, right? So they had their front doors and go out and do their daily shop. Everybody had a door that opened. But the issue was that a lot of the companions in the state of impurity were entering the mosque. You still with me here? Yeah, yeah i'm with you i'm with you <laughs> so a lot of companions I have,
0: uh, 10%. so let's make this the peak story to end us off with <laughs>
1: no 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 of course of course right so a lot of companions were entering the mosque in the state of impurity right yeah. and in that state of impurity obviously entering the mosque is something that you're not allowed to do right so the prophet then said let all the doors that open to the mosque be permanently barred shut, except the door of Ali ibn Abi Talib. Well, one thing a lot of people may not know is if you pick up the history of Nabi Harun and Nabi Musa, you'll also read that there was a mosque, so to speak, built by Nabi Musa, his companions' doors used to also open into that mosque. Those companions used to come into the mosque in the state of impurity. Nabi Musa gave an Aylan one day and said, let all the doors opening to the mosque be permanently barred shut, except the door of Haru. Wow. Wow. And if you look at the names, just Hassan and Hussein in Arabic, if you were to translate these names into Hebrew, Right? The two sons of Harun alayhi salam were Shabbar Shabbir. and Shabir. Wow. Which mean Hassan and Hussein. There's, there's many similarities between uh, I'm, I'm I'm actually currently writing a book um, yeah. on this specific um these and I'll give you the title of the book, yeah. yeah. Ooh, one of those titles, right? The title of the book is called Muhammad's Harun. Wow, that's a solid line. <laughs> and in that book, I've literally dissected the biography of Nabi Harun and of Amirul Mu'minin and of Nabi Musa and of Rasulullah. And I've brought four people together, and the entire book just reflects on the similarities between Nabi Musa, Nabi Harun, Nabi Musa, Nabi Harun, Amir al-Mu'mineen, and the Prophet. And it just literally, the entire book is just uh, an expansion or a tafsir of the hadith of Manzila.
0: Okay, that's a book we should all be keeping an eye out for, inshallah, when it's published. Inshallah, After yeah, it's not
1: finished already. yet. Obviously, yeah. I, I just need to do a few more things well, in there. But inshallah, the going, book,
0: inshallah, is a great khidma for all of us. I want to buy the mention, this is why I love doing podcasts, because... You never know what's going to happen. And just right now, we have been so blessed to listen to about 20 minutes of pure fadail of Muhammad Ali, a.s. Narrations, ayat of Quran, stories that actually give life to us and give life to our hearts. So Sayyidina, I, I knew you'd come with it. I knew you'd bring that fadail So thank you so much for, <laughs> for coming. I'm going to have to go. That's why I'm having to close. But thank you for all of those stories and beautiful reflections. I guess the takeaway that I take from that is, you know, if you're feeling down or you're feeling I'm disconnected, just start open a book or open a lecture. Just listen to the fadail of Ali, and Ali talib alayhis salam. and wherever situation you're in, it'll become more beautiful. For example, my night has now just been made by that dhikr. Thank you, Sayyidina, inshallah. Um, no appreciate coming thank on, you very bro. much
1: for having me. It's been an honor.
0: I'm sorry about the issues before, bro, with the with the network, and I don't know what actually happened.
1: Uh, <laughs> but, um, no problem. Inshallah.
0: Thank you so much for being on and to the listeners. Thank you for listening. Thank you for attending and participating. We'll be back tomorrow, inshallah. But allow me to wish you, Sayyidina, um, you know, great du'as for the holy month of Ramadan and for your service and pray for us, inshallah.
1: Allah, of course, definitely. Brother, you pray for us as well, inshallah.
0: Always. I'll see you soon. When you're in London, let me know if I upload for a link, inshallah. Inshallah. We take care. Inshallah. Salaam. <laughs> Peace. Amanillah. Peace. Amanillah. <laughs> Peace. Bye, everyone. Take care.